Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Last week, we started a new series called The Forgotten God. And we are talking about the Holy Spirit in this series. And we're going to look at a number of different areas. Today, we're going to talk about God's Spirit in us and through us and what it means to trust that God's voice is not just surrounding us, but also somehow guiding us through the world. Next week, we'll look at spirit in community and how we navigate our choices together. And then we're going to talk about how spirit expands our imagination of the divine, adding more complexity, but also more beauty into the metaphors that are available to us. But last week, we began the series by talking about Trinity. Because I figured if we're going to talk about God as spirit, then we need some framework for that. And this is what Trinity provides for us. I also said last week that I'm not particularly interested in adjudicating theological spats in this series. All of our language of God, but particularly when we talk about something as mysterious as spirit, this language is provisional. If you think about it, As soon as we start to talk about God in any capacity, we are necessarily using language that's drawn from our experience of the world to describe something, someone, who is fundamentally other. And so we always have to hold our God talk open-handed. There's a theological stream called the apophatic tradition. And the core of apophatic theology is the idea that we can only ever say what God is not. God is just too big, too great for us to ever speak definitively of. And so in this tradition, even if you were to say God is love, you could say, okay, well, as human beings, we experience love and that orients us toward the divine. It helps us understand that God is not avarice or selfishness or greed or wrath because those things are not love. But even our very concepts, our experience of love are always tilted, even if slightly. And so divine love is something we can never, ever perfectly describe. We can only know what God is by noticing the brokenness in our own experiences of love. Now, I'm not a theologian in the apophatic tradition, but I do think they are onto something there. By the way, Gregory of Nazianzus, who we talked about last week, and who gave us that image of Trinity as the eternal dancing around, He came from the apophatic tradition of the Cappadocian Fathers. Now, one more footnote here. If you really want to tie yourself in an apophatic knot, listen to this quote from the 9th century Irish theologian John the Scot. We do not know what God is. God does not know what God is. Because God is not anything. God is not because God transcends the very idea of being. Now, all he's saying here is that even our language of being and knowing, all of this is too narrow for God. And so when we talk of God, we have to remind ourselves to keep pushing ourselves to expand our thinking. That's his point. Now, why is this important when it comes to Trinity? Well, it's important because we have sometimes these deeply ingrained images and metaphors. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. They are beautiful, sacred even, because they are gifted to us by God. But those images can also, if we're not careful, close down rather than open up our imagination of God. God is like a father, but God is not your dad. And God is like a son, but 
in Christian theology, we have this belief that the Christ is eternal in both directions. So Jesus was born and lived and died and rose again, ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us. And that Jesus demonstrates divine love for us alive and breathing in human history. But the Christ, the Logos, the word that was with God in the beginning, as John says, that has always existed, never been born, therefore not an offspring, and therefore not at least literally a son. And look, that gets kind of heady. And you might be right to ask, what's the point of all this? Does it even matter? Truth is, you can very rightly keep Jesus at the center of your faith journey and model your life around his example and teachings, and that is enough. But there are reasons that I think talking about the nature of God is worth the discomfort it brings from time to time. First, as I said, it keeps our God talk provisional. It reminds us that theology is useful, but theology can never completely define God. And so theology at its best is not about definite answers, it's about becoming more like God, more loving. And any theology that doesn't help you become more loving is by definition bad theology. Second, and this is why we're opening the series this way, is that I believe that reminding ourselves of the grace of God that extends even beyond our language, this is what creates the room for us to experience the presence of God, spirit in the fullness of what Jesus invites us to. As I said last week, I tend to live in my head a lot, and that can really be a gift. I'm pretty comfortable with myself and my idiosyncrasies at this point in life. But reminding myself that I can't think my way to God, that helps me to open myself to spirit in new ways every day. And so today, we want to talk about God as spirit in us, through us, speaking to us. But first, let's pray. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. We worship you today as creator of the universe, as savior of our world, as sustainer of all that is. And we ask that you would continue to invite us to know you in ever more expansive ways. May our lives look more and more like love. May our intentions be shaped by your imagination. Would our very existence sing of your presence around us this moment? As we speak today of triune being and spirit that enlivens and animates all life, might we begin to see more love and joy and peace and patience, more kindness and goodness and faithfulness, more gentleness and self-control. Might we see all of this growing up in us and extending out into your world through us? And if, in order for that to come, our imaginations need to be expanded or our welcome of spirit needs to be opened, then holy, blessed, glorious God in three persons, have mercy upon us and be present to us in a new way today. In the strong name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, Forgotten God Part 2. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus and the Father, Jesus and the Spirit, our felt experience in the world, and the peaceful voice of Spirit in our lives. First, though, let me say this. 
There's lots that I want to cover today, so buckle up because we are going to jump straight in. I got no stories for you. But we're going to start by looking at how Jesus talks about spirit. And in John 14, Jesus is starting to prep his disciples for his departure. The story is getting closer and closer to the cross, and Jesus is becoming more and more aware of how that story is going to go. And so he wants to prepare his friends for this. There's a lot going on in this chapter. It comes right on the heels of Jesus explaining to Peter that he will disown Jesus three times that very night. But then Jesus launches into this section by saying, look, I know this is bad news, but don't let your hearts be troubled. You already believe in God, trust also in me. My father's house has many rooms and I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I'm preparing a place for you, that means I will come back for you so that we can be together, don't lose heart. You know the way to where I am going. Now again, there's a lot going on here and we're gonna keep reading and we'll get to spirit a little later, but let's parse this first. Jesus says, guys, this isn't gonna end well. I'm gonna die, some of you are even going to desert me tonight. But trust me, I'm doing all of this for you, for your good. Now, sometimes, we get a little caught up here on wondering exactly what Jesus means by preparing a place for us. I mean, what are all these rooms and where exactly are they? I, I know that we have this popular imagination of Jesus as a carpenter, but I do not think that we should be picturing him building houses in heaven in this moment. This isn't intended as a technical explanation of angelic living quarters. The idea here is simply that the cross, which is what he's been talking about, prepares a place for us in the presence and the welcome of God. Okay, but then he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And that sounds kind of cryptic. But if you think about it, the place he is going is heaven and the way there is the cross. So this is just Jesus saying, guys, I've told you it's coming. We've talked about this before. I've tried to prepare you. Please don't lose hope. To which Thomas says, um, actually, we don't know what you're talking about and we certainly don't know the way. And this is a theme all through the Gospels, right? Jesus keeps explaining what's going to happen and the disciples keep pushing back saying we don't get it. We saw this just a couple weeks ago with Peter. In a vulnerable moment, Jesus opens up about his death and his fears and Peter says, oh, get out of here, that's never going to happen. And we can read that as the disciples not understanding, not getting Jesus. That's definitely part of the story. But there is another level here, I think. All of us, none of us, we never want to hear bad news. And so our tendency sometimes, I think, is to push back against what we don't want to hear and hold on to what we hope for. I think that's at least part of what's happening here. Thomas doesn't want to think about the path that Jesus is going to take, the suffering and the pain, and it's just easier to plead ignorance. And honestly, that feels a little too familiar at times. But Jesus responds by saying, you don't know the way. Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father too. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, pretty famous passage, uh, one that we get pulled out of context all the time to listen to. I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard this weaponized against someone who's outside of faith. 
rather than used as an invitation to explore Jesus. But a couple things here. First of all, notice the kindness that Jesus extends to Thomas in this moment. Thomas says, Jesus, I don't get it. I don't understand. And Jesus responds and says, actually, Thomas, you do. From now on, remember, you know me. You know God. It's going to be okay. And there's a lot that's going to come in the story. Much of it's going to be tragic. But I find Jesus' instinct to reassure his friend here incredibly comforting in those moments when I'm not sure about my own faith. I mean, just try to imagine yourself in a moment of anxiety and doubt and hearing Jesus say, it's okay, you know me, you know God, we'll get through this together. There's a tenderness to Jesus that I find magnetic. Hold on to that, we're going to make our way back to there later. But think about this moment for a second. Uh, Jesus has been talking about the cross. He says this needs to happen. He says the way it's going to happen is painful. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. And so Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. In other words, everything I have shown you through all of my life, all of the love, all of the selflessness and sacrifice for others that I've shown you, all of the ideas that I've taught and I've lived out in front of you, that's who I am and this is the way, all apologies to the Mandalorian. But that's essentially all that Jesus is saying here. The way of the cross is just another example of who he has always been all through his life. Because that way of generative love is the truth that life itself is grounded in. And if you've seen that, like Thomas, living and breathing in the world in front of you, then you have seen the Father because God is the eternal dance of gift and reception, self-giving love in relationship from before there was anything. Last week, I said that Trinity is not an explicitly biblical concept. It's the product of biblical reflection. This is what I'm talking about. At no point does the Bible or Jesus ever neatly explain Trinity for us. And yet as we reflect on the story of Jesus, we keep finding ourselves drawn back to this idea of divine love expressed within the community of God's self. But we haven't even gotten to spirit, and that's our agenda, so let's keep going. After the way and life and truth bit, Philip decides to jump in. And he says, okay, one more thing. Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Then we'll leave you alone. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but this right here is the moment when the facepalm was invented. (laughs) Just kidding. Jesus is far too gracious for that. Instead, he responds very calmly and very patiently. Well, Philip, as I said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you follow me, you are following the way. And if you live the way that I have lived, I promise you will find your way back to God. You can read his full response to Philip. It's in verses 9 to 15. I want to pick up again in verse 16 because that's where Jesus now expands the conversation to spirit. He says, I am going, but I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. 
Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And if that sounds confusing, you are not at all wrong. Because this is a mess. Jesus is going, and another is coming. And when that one comes, they will be in you, and Jesus will be gone, and no one will see him, but you will. Because Jesus is in the Father, and you are in him, and he is in you. My goodness. A couple things here. The NIV, which is what I'm reading from, has opted for masculine pronouns for spirit here. That's an interesting choice because spirit here is not a masculine noun and therefore none of the pronouns that Jesus uses are masculine. That said, translators are in a tough spot because while ruach, the feminine word for spirit in Hebrew, and spiritus is the Latin term, which is masculine there, pneuma, which we're reading in Greek, is neuter. And in English, neuter pronouns like it tend to be very depersonalized. So you can understand why they didn't want to use that. Uh, Interestingly, though, since the NIV was first published in 1973, they has actually become a more common singular pronoun in English, and that might actually be the closest to the intent of the Greek language in John 14. At the same time, probably shouldn't read too much into that. Greek, like French, assigns grammatical gender to words that has nothing to do with gender identity or expression. That's just a linguistic phenomenon. And so we are much better off building our imagination of spirit through the multiplicity of biblical images and metaphors, even the feminine ones it gives us, rather than just a linguistic analysis. Still, this is kind of an interesting note. The bigger focus here, though, is the way that Jesus, in the Gospel of John at least, weaves together his presence in the world with the creator of the universe, with the experience of spirit that runs throughout all of our lives. And again, this section by no means offers us a nice, neat, tidy definition of Trinity, but it does show that at least by the time that John was written in the late first century, the Christian community was forming an identity not just around the historical Jesus, but around the post-resurrection experience of Jesus' spirit that welcomes all of us into the presence of God. And you can see this beautifully in the opening, sometimes called the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. That's talking about a connection between Jesus and God, but it's using language that is very clearly drawn from Genesis. And there the poet writes that in the beginning when everything was formless and void and God began to create, it was the spirit or the ruach of God that hovered over creation. So we have creator that shapes us and Christ that transforms us and spirit that indwells and animates all of us entwined inseparably together in this Christian imagination. Now why is any of this important beyond a debatably interesting theological lesson? Well, here's why it's important to me. Because Jesus talks and scriptures speak about our felt experience of the divine. The spirit that lives and moves through us in the world as equally valid with any other expression of divine encounter. Spirit, 
and emotion and encounter, these are not secondary ways to speak of God. With every breath, you have access to the same creative force that has shaped the universe. And that's beautiful. But that's also sometimes a little bit scary, isn't it? I mean, who's to say this is spirit, but this is not? And I have spirit, but you don't. Much easier sometimes to clamp back down on what we can say for sure. To elevate scripture, or let's be honest, our particular interpretation of scripture above the living, breathing spirit of Jesus that is at work in all of us leading us steadily back toward love. I mean, you and I, we've all seen expressions of Christianity that we know in our bones are not loving. But sometimes we would rather that in its absoluteness than the complexity and the subjectivity of trusting spirit to guide us when it comes to love. And look, I'm talking to myself here because oftentimes when I have seen things that looked like religious abuse, my default response has been to step back or away or to intellectualize my faith rather than lean on spirit to guide me forward. And yet I also know that some of my experiences with spirit have been absolutely formative for me. They've shaped me and pointed me in directions that have defined my life. I mean, I went into ministry as a career, and then a few years later, I left that career. A couple of years after that, I moved to Calgary to work for a church all over again, and then I left that position, one that I had held for a decade, to start a church here in Kensington. And at each of those junctures, there was some sense of spirit that was guiding me. I know that, I trust that, but none of it ever was simple. And yet looking back, reflecting on the most important decisions of my life, the ones where I know spirit was leading me, I've come to realize that none of them ever felt like an obligation. Like I've made some hard choices, but it's always only ever been invitation and adventure and possibility in front of me, this loving welcome of spirit into what comes next. And slowly, over time, this is how I've come to identify that softer, more subjective voice of God in my life. And ironically, probably what I should have known from the start is that it is the slow, steady, gentle welcome of Jesus that I've learned to listen for when it comes to spirit. Because here's the thing, to welcome the guidance of spirit is a risky thing. And I've taken some big leaps in my life based on what I thought the Spirit was saying to me. But whenever I've seen the idea of Spirit used in manipulative ways, like the times particularly earlier in my Christian journey when I saw the threat of Spirit used to intimidate someone or to bolster authority by elevating one person above another, that was never gentle like Jesus. And it was never an invitation to explore. It was always a demand. It wasn't a risk. It was fear that dominated those moments. And that is not the way, nor the truth, nor the life that was embodied by the Christ. 
The one who welcomes us to witness the union of creator and spirit and savior in our world. The one who reveals God to us. A self-giving dance of gift and reception from before time. See, spirit is active in you right now, evidenced by the very fact that you breathe. And God is so much more than just an idea to understand or even a teaching to embrace. God is speaking to you in every moment, guiding you to love. But the way to filter out that voice from the many that speak to all of us constantly every day is to train ourselves to listen for the most gentle, the most peaceful voice we can possibly distinguish from everything else. That spirit. The best way to discern spirit is to listen for the voice that gently listens back to you. The one that says, from now on, You do know me, you do know God, you do know love. I know it's difficult, but we can do this together. And sometimes I find myself wishing I could trade spirit for answers. And I know that would make a lot of things easier for me, but I also know that will never reflect the God that has only ever known community and love. And so I'm left learning how to love. Trusting that spirit is as real as my mind. And knowing that with every small step I take, every time I give myself away in the model of Jesus, I move closer to everything that God imagines for me. So may you sense spirit in you and near you today, close as your breath. May the most gentle voice in the world slowly become the one that you learn to listen to. And may you learn to trust the guiding of spirit that leads you steadily toward self-giving love, inviting you to love the way that the Christ did. May spirit lead all of us into more grace today. Let's pray. Three in one God, who has always existed as self-giving love, shared gift and reception, give and take, inhale and exhale, God who speaks and listens within God's self. Might that imagination of love become the imagination from which we live. With the cacophony of voices that speak to us and yell at us, demand allegiance from us, might we slowly begin to parse out your voice. The gentle, peaceful voice that teaches us what it means to love each other. In all of the complexity of life and relationship, may we slowly hear your voice more clearly and may the courage rise up inside us to follow it. And step by step, as we follow your way in the world, might we trust, might we know that we are being drawn closer to you. In the strong name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Two more weeks of spirit.